Hello, everyone. You're listening to American Indian Airwaves. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I'm your host for the hour, Larry Smith. You know, we know that domestic violence during this time has increased both in the frequency of violence happening as well as the severity. The injuries really have become more severe for those people that are reaching out for help. And there have been more people accessing services for injuries. And so the rates of violence definitely have gone up across the country. And so I think that for our relatives, you know, both on reservation and off reservation, I think that it's unfortunate. Today on American Indian Airwaves, the rise of domestic violence during the COVID-19 pandemic as we speak with the executive director of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline, news and world premiere music here on American Indian Airwaves. You can hear when the moon shines bright, the lone And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. Before our feature interview on the rise of domestic violence during the COVID-19 pandemic, first the news. In New Mexico this past Sunday on December 27th, an indigenous actor on the Longmire television drama Marine Veteran was walking his dog at the Petroglyph National Monument when National Park Service ranger tasered him after he ventured off the marked hiking trail seeking a culturally appropriate place for exercising his religious rights. Daryl House of the Navajo Oneida Nations was accompanied by a female individual who recorded the entire incident. In the opening sound clip, the ranger is standing approximately 10 feet away, walking quickly towards House with a taser in his right hand. Three seconds into the video, a loud pop and electric sound can be heard as the ranger closes the distance on House, who is seen lying on the ground, his back to the ranger, clutching his left rear thigh. As the ranger approaches, he applies the taser directly to House's back at least twice, a maneuver known as a dry stun, which is designed to drive the taser's internal contacts into direct contact with the subject. During the subsequent four and a half minutes of the video, the ranger appears to engage the taser at least two more times in rapid succession. Help! 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 What are you doing? What are you doing? Show me what are you doing? I don't have anything! I don't have anything! 
Show me. 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 In a statement posted on Daryl House's Instagram account, he states, Today, on December 27, 2020, I was tasered for being off trail at the Petroglyphs. I come here to pray and speak to my Pueblo ancestor relatives. Even though I'm Navajo and Oneida, I honor this land. Please share. According to the National Park Service, they issued a press release stating that the incident is under review and has been referred to the National Park Service Office of Professional Responsibility, our Internal Affairs Unit, and for thorough investigation. The National Park Service indicates that while they work to gather the facts of this specific situation, they cannot speculate on the events leading up to what was captured on video. We take any allegations of wrongdoing very seriously and appreciate the public's patience as we gather the facts of this incident. The Petroglyph National Monument includes more than 7,000 acres containing one of the largest petroglyph sites in North America and is sacred and culturally significant to several indigenous nations throughout the region. And to Bacchus, Minneapolis, one water protector was arrested on Monday, December 28th of 2020 after ascending a tripod blockading an Enbridge pipe yard with dozens of treaty land and water protectors gathered to protect Mother Earth along the Enbridge Energy's planned Line 3 oil pipeline. Emma Harrison was arrested and released two days later. Indigenous peoples and nations, along with climate justice advocates, are opposed to the Line 3 pipeline, which would transport 760,000 barrels of crude oil every day through northern Minnesota from Hadartsi, Alberta, to Superior, Wisconsin, traversing more than 800 wetland habitats, violating Anishinaabe or Ojibwe treaty rights, and putting current and future generations at risk of more polluted waters, damaging ecosystems, lack of biodiversity, and increased preventions of culturally sustainable practices for indigenous nations along the pipeline route. Currently, there are lawsuits pending, and on December 24th, the White Earth and Red Lake Nations, along with the Honor the Earth and Sierra Club organizations, filed a federal complaint due to the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers erroneously issuing water permits under the U.S. Clean Water Act to Enbridge Energy, which is required for constructing the pipeline. Enbridge Energy is permitted construction of the Line 3 pipeline while the courts determine to grant the requested injunctions that would stop Enbridge Energy's Pipeline 3.
and Washington, D.C., provided the U.S. Senate approves the second COVID-19 relief bill, there are several funding benefits for Indian country and indigenous communities that include an extension for COVID-19 relief funding for indigenous governments, a $1 billion allocation for broadband support to indigenous communities, colleges, and universities, along with mental health, housing, water emergency, and child care assistance. The relief bill also includes a 0.3% budget increase for Indian Health Services, and it includes several water debt relief bills for spending that includes a Navajo Nation water rights settlement and a Salish Kootenai water rights settlement, plus more. And to the Diné Navajo Nation in Window Rock, Arizona, on Tuesday, the Navajo Department of Health, in coordination with the Navajo Epidemiology Center and the Navajo Area Indian Health Service, reported 153 new COVID-19 positive cases for the Navajo Nation and four more deaths. The total number of deaths is now 781 as of Tuesday. Reports indicate that 11,677 individuals have recovered from COVID-19 and 200,584 COVID-19 tests have been administered. The total number of positive COVID-19 cases is now 22,526, including two delayed reported cases in the Navajo Nation. Throughout Indian country and metropolitan areas with large indigenous populations, COVID-19 rates continue escalating, according to Indian Health Service. As of December 28th, there are 140,944 COVID-19 positive cases, or about one out of every nine indigenous peoples, or about 9.2% cumulatively test positive. Some of the hardest-hit areas include Oklahoma City and Oklahoma, the Navajo Nation in the Four Corners region, Phoenix, Arizona, the Great Plains region, Alaska, Minnesota, New Mexico, and the state of Montana. Indian Health Service reported data comes from Indian Health Service tribal and urban Indian organization facilities in all reportable incidences are by tribal and urban programs is voluntary. And to Washington, D.C., in a major decision being hailed as a win for indigenous sovereignty, the United States Supreme Court ruled last Thursday that a large portion of eastern Oklahoma remains treaty territory. In the 5-4 decision, the nation's highest court said Congress never explicitly disestablished the 1866 boundaries of the Muscogee Nation. According to the majority opinion written by Justice Neil Gorsuch, Today we are asked whether the land these treaties promised remains an Indian reservation for purposes of federal criminal law. Because Congress has not said otherwise, we hold the government to its word. The case involved tribal citizen Jimmy McGirt from the Seminole Nation, who was convicted of molesting a child, but argued the state courts lacked authority to try him for a crime committed on the reservation. The ruling means his case falls under federal jurisdiction. It does not mean McGirt's conviction is nullified. Rather, he should have been tried in federal court under the Major Crimes Act. 
McGird is serving a 500-year prison sentence and could potentially be retried in federal court. Meanwhile, an Oklahoma congressional delegation said in a joint statement they are reviewing the decision and are ready to work with indigenous and state officials. The group of legislators want to ensure consistency and stability in the application of the law and bringing criminals to justice. Additionally, the state, along with the Muscogee, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Seminole Nations, are working on an agreement to send to Congress and the Department of Justice addressing any issues related to the decision. And that concludes the news here on American Indian Airwaves. We're going to take a short break with a world premiere song by Keith IMC called I Am Fine Right Where I Am. I'm fine right where I am by Keith IMC here on American Indian Airwaves. 
In today on American Indian Airwaves, we look at the rise of domestic violence in Native American households and throughout Indian country during the COVID-19 pandemic. In today's two-part interview, I'm joined by special guest co-hosts Stephanie Mushruck from the Washoe Nation as we interview Strong Hearts Native Helpline's Executive Director Lori Jump from the Sault Ste. Marie Nation of Chippewa Indians, and we speak with her regarding the escalating rise of domestic violence throughout Native American households and Indian country. To start with what you and I were talking about, or share with our listeners, what does domestic violence look like for Indigenous peoples during the COVID-19 pandemic? And so if you maybe just give our listeners a sense of... um, what that looks like. Has it gotten better? Has it gotten worse? Has it remained static? And why or why not? So I think that what we've found, um, both anecdotally, and there have been some very small studies that have been completed, um, is that, you know, we know that domestic violence during this time has increased both in the frequency of violence happening as well as the severity. Um, There was a small radiological study that compared a three-month time period during COVID with the same three-month time period from the past couple of years, and and they found that the injuries really have become more severe for those people that are reaching out for help, and there have been more people accessing services for injuries. And so um, based on that and, and then based also on just the anecdotal information that we're hearing is that, you know, the rates of violence definitely have gone up across the country. And so I think that for our relatives, you know, both on reservation and off reservation, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate, but the rates definitely seem as though they've increased. And I think that part of that, part of the problem has been, right, that is that, you know, we've been all sheltering in place at home. And um, and if you're in an abusive situation, then you're sheltering with your abusive partners. So the one place where you should be safe, you know, in your own home has, has become um, even more dangerous for our relatives that are facing, you know, these situations. You know, our numbers actually... Um, our call numbers, people that were reaching out to us, actually fell during the first couple of months of COVID. And, you know, we, and again, that's not because the violence wasn't happening. It's because they were, you know, stuck at home with their abusive partner and not able to reach out for help. So, yeah, it's not been a good situation for our relatives, unfortunately. Could you uh, give our listeners uh, kind of a foundation about, uh, of what domestic violence looked like pre-COVID-19 so we understand how um, amplified and severe the situation has become during the COVID-19 pandemic? Um, well, I can talk to you a little bit about the statistics that our relatives in Indian country are facing. Um, you know, 55% of, of women have experienced physical violence by their intimate partners um, in their lifetime. And for Native victims of physical violence, two in five, so about 38%, were not able to get the services that they needed. And, you know, that's primarily, um, you know, medical services, shelter services, um, legal services. Those are all the types of services that people were, are looking for. And, and just because of the disparities that we face in our, in our communities, they were not able to access those services. 
So, you know, compared to non-Native persons, our relatives are five times as likely to have experienced physical violence. And one of the biggest problems that we face is that many times these incidents are at the hands of a non-Native person. Um, so it's um, not intraracial, it's interracial. And, and with the jurisdictional issues that we face in our communities, um, that makes it much more difficult to access justice, right? right. Um, you know, we can't, uh, mo- the majority, vast majority of tribal nations are unable to prosecute a non-Native person for crimes of violence. And so you're not only not getting the services you need, but you don't get justice either because your tribe can't prosecute. And we're often dependent upon the federal response, which often isn't there um, to the level that we would like to see it. So it's just no matter how you look at it, it's really just dire circumstances, I think, for, for our people. So thinking about the increase of violence that you've mentioned during COVID times, has that had an effect on the services and approach offered by Strong Hearts Native Helpline? Yeah, you know, um, we have found that the people that who are reaching out just really have a need for validation and empowerment, right? They're quite often services, as I said, are, are not available. And during this time period, Um, With COVID, where some shelters are operating at, you know, a much lower capacity, or if you can't get a COVID-19, you know, a test um, and have a negative test come back, they're not accepting people into shelter. Um, So we really feel that um, something that they're really needing is just the validation, right? Um, Having somebody to talk to and talk about how how they're doing just every day. Um, has been really, I think, impactful for them um, is to have our advocates, you know, just a listening ear, really, and maybe not even necessarily looking for services because, you know, they're all sheltering at home. Um, And so, yeah, our advocates are spending much more time having conversations. Yeah, the other thing that we've done is, is because of the situation, we really upped our game with our social media accounts um, and just posting, you know, ways to stay safe, ways to stay um, emotionally safe, right? How do, how do we take care of ourselves, you know, with all the extra stress and the loss of income and the impact that that has had on our families? And so we've, we've done a lot of reaching out on social media just saying, you know, talking about ways to take care of themselves. And I think that that's been important because they're not getting those messages from, you know, maybe their relatives that they might have or their friends. Right. Thank you so much for that. Are the people accessing your website, are they using the new chat option? I did see that that's something that's newer um, as far as services, correct? Yes. Um, you know, we, we've been planning to offer the chat services. Um, at some point this year, we, we hadn't nailed down a date or, a, you know, a time period for it really, but with the... Um, pandemic and everybody being stuck at home and and making it harder, I think, to make phone calls, we did implement that. Um, We kind of fast-tracked it. So people are using it. I think it it still is, you know, um, we're still working on increasing the knowledge around it. Um, And I think we'll see that continue to grow in use over the, you know, as, as time goes on. And one of the 
impacts for us, of course, has been, you know, with uh, all of the outreach that we normally would have done, you know, going into tribal communities and attending their health fairs and conferences and things like that, we've not been able to do either. And so we've really had to rely on um, kind of, you know, interviews like this or taking out ads in newspapers, that type of outreach, um, which I think has made it more difficult. You touched on families, and I know one of the, um, the alarming um, consequences or impacts, you know, from uh, households is uh, the children and how they're affected. And And I was wondering if you could talk about the consequences or, or some of the exacerbated or amplified effects that we're seeing, you know, domestic violent household, native households, and what it's having on children, and what that means intergenerationally? Well, that's a huge question. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to say, right? Because I think that, um, you know, as I said, research in Indian country is pretty rare to come across. Right. And, and right now, we really are, um, you know, trying to, depending, we're, we're forced to depend on anecdotal information. Um, but what we are hearing is that, you know, when everybody is stuck together and there's no relief from that, I think it is having an impact on our children, and we have to be really careful and, and mindful of that. Um, and so we've we've talked a lot to our callers about how they're interacting with their children and, and being really mindful to make sure that they connect with them every day in a meaningful way. Um, and I think that sometimes that gets lost in our in our hectic lives, right? We're all running from work and to school and to, you know, after school activities and whatever whatever it is, that sometimes we can be not as mindful as we should be with our kids. And so we've really focused on talking about that um, with our callers and giving them tips on how to keep their children engaged so that they know they're not alone. They know these things are not their fault, which, you know, quite often kids can try to shoulder that burden. But, you know, really just having conversations about that. And so we, we know that, you know, again, anecdotally, you know, we've I'm sure you've all heard it or seen the statistics that depression is up um, amongst our, our people. I think that the use of alcohol and other substances is up significantly as well. And and it's been harder to access um, services for those things. And so, you know, many times the healthcare institutions are, are operating at reduced capacity and it's hard to get in for um, an, an appointment and um, hard to access the support that um, you might need. And so, you know, we've just really been having open and honest conversations about that, about what it looks like in their households and, and how are they dealing with it. What I would imagine, too, is that during this, um, the, these precarious times that um, you talked about depression and how that can lead to, to suicide, which is also uh, a serious um, and systemic issue in Indian country. And, and so talk about how 
how necessary the services and the kind of work that Strong Hearts um, Native Helpline is is providing to community members, but you know how it's uh, essential, right, in just uh, maintaining individual and collective and community lives and relations, so people can have a future. Yeah, you know, I think you know what we're social beings, right? We need that connection with each other, and and so I think that's been such a difficult piece for everybody to adjust to. You know, I. I mean, I I have a phone for work. I'm on the phone now talking to you. Um, But I rarely call anybody. You know, usually it's a quick message or a text or or something on Messenger or something. And and we're just reminding, doing a lot of reminding to people that, you know, to reach out and check in on your relatives, you know, because it's, it is concerning with the levels of depression that's going up and the the increased use of um, alcohol or other substances, um, you know, we're not okay. We we are, everybody is missing that. Um, and so if you're in a relationship where isolation is one of the tools that they use anyway, this um, pandemic has offered a whole new level of that tool, right? And so, you know, trying to stay connected to your relatives, I think, is just really important. I was wondering, and maybe this is shifting a little bit, but I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the different types of abuse um, that um, your clients or your community that they come to you for support for, the different types of abuse. I, I saw some that might be different from other domestic violence agencies, such as cultural abuse and spiritual abuse. Could you mm-hmm. talk a little bit about those forms of abuse that might be different in the native setting um, compared to other settings? Yeah, you know, I think that for us, our, our culture and traditions is just, you know, central to who we are as a people. Um, you know, it's just at the very core of of who we are. And so they're, they're big pieces of our lives. Um, and, you know, I think that when we talk about the cultural abuse, it's, it's, you know, either subjecting you to traditions and ceremonies that maybe are not your own and forcing you to participate. It could be not letting you participate in your own communities. And I think sometimes, you know, we see this, Oh, just the disrespect, you know what, you're, oh, you're not Native enough or you're too Native, right? You, we see this where, you know, people are just really either harassed because they do participate in their, in their cultural activities and maybe their partner is non-Native and doesn't, or if they are Native that, you know, those aren't my traditions or my ceremonies, so I don't want you to do that. And that can really weigh on somebody, you know, it's, it's, I think, how we have survived as a people all these years, you know, has been by leaning on our traditions and our culture and, you know, our respect for, you know, just all living things. And to have that taken away from us is, can be pretty damaging to our spirit, you know, so there's that piece of it. And then, you know, of course, the spiritual, on the spiritual side, I think that, you know, again, those not being able to participate in the things that make you whole as a person is um, can really send somebody down spiraling, you know, pretty quickly if they don't have access to that 
And those aren't things that we see necessarily in, you know, the non-Native community as much. I think that our, as I said, our culture, depending upon where you're from, right, is and how connected you are to your your tribal community it is, is just a really a difficult part of, you know, the tactics that abusive partners will use. And that concludes the first segment of our interview here on American Indian Airwaves. And we've been speaking with Lori Jump from the Sault Ste. Marie Nation of Chippewa Indians. She's executive director of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline, which recorded its 10,000th call this past December 17th, meaning more than 10,000 people have now reached out to the helpline for safe, confidential support and resources for domestic dating and sexual violence. And now we're going to take a short break here on American Indian Airwaves with another premiere song by Keith IMC called Turtles Warpath. Many, many times that they walk Ideas that are waha awaha so Ah, indigenous in the system With a wish list and a hit list To vaccinate and eradicate What a moment to witness So stand up in this nightmare We're the dream and we're right here Let's ask your project light years Then come back with our minds clear We stand here with the protests Learning from our past If only you could fill our tears But all we feel is tear gas M-Rap, simple horns Reforms, can you reform? Something formed in the image of the devil Even if you take the horn Is it the devil you know? Uh, flashing lights to Popo okay. They got guns out my door Come on. I'm letting the whole world know It's Tell a no-knock It's a no-knock It's a no-knock Continue to watch Every day I'm seeing my brothers killed by these cars We about to warpath change the darkness and the forecast I see so much karma in the world and more rap Sometimes I don't really know what the Lord have So I'ma chill, sit back and support that It's unity between red and black Red Fox and a Malcolm Tat Fighting the power and it's no cap And when I'm done it's land back Unity between red and black Red Fox and a Malcolm Tat Fighting the power and it's no cap And when I'm done it's land back I got back. a message for my people like a forecast yeah. Wrong to freedom is a war path Come on Many, many times thought they walk Now what? And that was a brand new song called Turtles Warpath by Keith IMC here on American Indian Airwaves. In the second segment of today's program, we continue our interview with Lori Jump, Executive Director of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline on the rise of domestic violence during the COVID-19 pandemic in Native American households and throughout Indian country. 
Native Americans experienced some of the highest rates of violence in their lifetime. In fact, more than four in five Native Americans have experienced violence in their lifetime. More than one in two Native women and one in three Native men have experienced physical violence by intimate partners in their lifetime. For Native victims of physical intimate partner violence, stalking and sexual violence, Two in five Native women and one in six Native men were unable to get the services they needed. Native women and men are five times as likely to have experienced physical violence by non-intimate partner as compared to non-Native people. And Native men and women are two times more likely to experience rape, sexual assault, and two and a half times more likely to experience violent crimes. Our guest for the entire hour, Lori Jump, who's from the Sault Ste. Marie Nation of Chippewa Indians, is executive director of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline, which received its 10,000th call this December 17th of 2020. Stronghearts Native Helpline indicates that over 10,000 callers have now reached out to the helpline for safe, confidential support and resources for domestic, dating, and sexual violence. And now, this is part two of our two-part segment on the rise of domestic violence throughout Indian country and Native American households. Laura, we've been talking about cultural and spiritual violence as to other forms of domestic violence. And I was curious, you know, given the stay-at-home orders that a lot of us are living under and the fact that indigenous peoples are place-based peoples and, you know, given the kind of climate um, situation some of us live in, given our economic constraints or our economic situations, you know, all these things are contributory factors that make it a lot harder for indigenous peoples to get out of these toxic environments where, you know, domestic violence is so prevalent. And I was wondering if maybe you could speak on that a little bit more. And, you know, so far we've been talking about indigenous peoples within federally recognized nations, right, throughout Indian country. And, you know, about two-thirds to three-fourths of all Native people live in urban metropolitan areas. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about that dynamic, because so many of us, you know, live in these urban environments away from our traditional homelands. And during this COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of urban native people, right, are living in conditions, are living in toxic conditions under these stay-at-home orders. So your thoughts on those things? Yeah, I think that, you know, we have been really placed a high priority on connecting with urban Indian populations simply because I think it can be so difficult to access culturally appropriate um, services when you're not connected directly to your tribal community in any way because of where you might be living. Um, And so that's been an area that we have placed a high priority on connecting with and and have found it somewhat difficult, if I'm being absolutely honest. Um, And so we continue to work at that because I do think that our experiences um, and our historical trauma that um, I, I believe still impacts us today, um, 
you know, can make it difficult for our people to reach out anyway. And then when we do reach out, if we, you know, connect with somebody who just doesn't understand our culture um, or our ceremonies or our traditions, it can leave us feeling, um, you know, like we're, we're missing something. And, and so I think it's really important to access, you know, culturally specific services um, when and where we can. Um, so that is an area, as I said, that, you know, we're really hoping to bridge um, and then, you know, over the next year, um, just continuing to reach out to urban Indian organizations and um, to see how we can partner with them. But I think it's, you know, as you said, the pandemic has made it difficult for even when you may want to go home, um, not being able to. You know, you may want to go mm-hmm. home for ceremony. Um, and, and we just, you know, ceremonies <laughs> aren't being held as they would have been. Um, you know, funerals, right? You can't even go home when somebody in your family has has passed, whether it's from COVID or, or other causes. Um, you know, there are all these mandates where, you know, funerals are... are you know, I'm I'm here in Michigan, and and I think that they they want to keep any any gatherings of any sort um, to less than ten people. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're a native person, gosh, that's barely going to cover your immediate family. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a, a it really has placed so many restrictions on us and our ability to heal in ways that we're used to healing. Yes, um, so thinking about how your providers are able to approach your clients and community members in a culturally appropriate way, can you share a little bit about what, what the role um, of, or how the, uh, how the role of culture plays in the services that you offer? Yeah, you know, I think that, as I said, it's, you know, culture is, is really at the core of who we are as a people, regardless of which tribal nation you are um, part of. I think that it's such a big part of who we are just as people. And so being able to talk to somebody who understands um, your lived experience um, as, as Native people and who understands the historical trauma that, as I said, still impacts us all today, um, is really important and I think that it creates um, a connection that is is hard to um, create if you're talking with somebody that doesn't understand where you're from or what your life has been like Um, and so having that connection has really opened the doors I think to our callers um, opening up to our advocates it's it's interesting because oftentimes they'll say, "Well, well, are you are you actually native?" And you know, our and as soon as our advocates say, "Yeah, you know, I'm a citizen of this tribe or that tribe," and and it just opens the doors. Um, you know, people just really appreciate that peer-to-peer um, support that they can get, and and I don't think you can understate the importance of that. Right, definitely. In terms of the work that um, that you and uh, uh, the organization's been doing, I'm wondering is um, it, during this time of the year and as we proceed through the winter months, um, the role that climate and weather plays and how it 
contributes to people's, um, you know, uh, staying at home or, or being restricted mo- in terms of mobility, um, especially in areas where, you know, we see uh, strong winters, we see blizzard-like conditions, right? We see other economic factors um, are that all contribute to c- keeping people immobilized. And I was just curious, um, do we see a role in the way weather plays out in terms of Native folks experiencing forms of domestic violence and not being able to get out of those um, critically harmful situations? Yeah, well, I'm from northern Michigan, and so I understand exactly what you're talking about, right? Yeah, right. Um, as, as, you know, as winter comes and with it, all of those things that you mentioned, the, the snow and the wind and the, the ice, um, that makes it difficult to travel, you know, and, and we do stay home more often. You know, we don't leave our homes as we normally would. And that can be another factor in terms of isolation, you know, just our ability to to get to someplace safe, you know, even even when you do have a vehicle. And for people that don't have vehicles, it's, you know, just a, it's a complete a barrier that they just can't even begin to overcome. Um, And so, again, you know, we talk about, you know, when people call us, we talk about how how are they keeping themselves safe, Um, not just physically safe, but, you know, emotionally safe, because that's, that's just as important. It's interesting, you know, when people call in, the type of um, violence that they most often want to talk about is not the physical violence, it's about the emotional Mm -hmm. violence that you know, impacts their their spirit. Um, and I think that that's the most difficult part for them is, you know, you know, they say wounds heal and bruises fade. Um, but those attacks just at the center of who you are as a person is are, are kind of there forever. And so those are the ones that we spend more time talking about um, with our callers and how to, you know, how, how to overcome those. Um, because it's difficult. And you're listening to American Indian Airwaves. We're speaking with Lori Jump, Executive Director of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. She's speaking on the rise of domestic violence in Native American households and throughout Indian country during the COVID-19 pandemic. And now back to the interview. Um, yeah, just thinking about culture and your services, and are there specific, um, and maybe you already covered this, but are there specific practices or um, remedies that are used or um, models that are used by Strong Hearts to help in that healing process? Yeah, you know, I think it's it's hard to have um, you know, when you look at, you know, there's 574 tribal nations, right, from across the country. And what culture looks like in, in Michigan looks very different from what it looks mm-hmm. like in probably California, right, mm-hmm. or in, in Washington. And so um, what we try to do is is talk to people about what their practices are mm-hmm. in their community um, and you know, and then encouraging them to use those as best they can or to find ways to modify them so that they can use them at home. Um, And so that's kind of what we do is really, um, you know, talk about what 
you know, the caller's experience has been in, in, in um, you know, what forms of traditional activities or ceremonies have they practiced, you know, have they participated in? And we really let them kind of guide that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can talk about what I do here, but it may not be appropriate um, for mm-hmm. somebody from, you know, New Mexico. Um, Right. So yeah, having that conversation with them and just really letting them tell us what you know what they've used in the past, and and then trying to help them figure out ways that they can um, practice in some form, um, whether it's you know in a in a slightly different way at home if they can't get out to um, you know to to practice in their normal areas. Lori, I was actually curious to know, and when we talk about perpetrators of um, domestic violence and, um, and most of them being non-Native people, is there any kind of pattern in terms of the perpetrators, um, it, whether it be by gender or even by their occupation or even um, class? Is there any kind of patterns to the perpetrators of domestic violence? You know, domestic violence is something that, you know, it, it just crosses all the boundaries, right? And all right. of the, the, you know, so, you know, the genders, the income, the education, the uh, rural versus urban. I mean, right. just everything. It seems to cross all of those boundaries without any, you know, regard for them. And, and I think that that's true of perpetrators as well. Mm. You know, we tend to think that there are stereotypes, right? Right. Right. Mm-hmm. That to everything, to whether it's a an abusive partner or whether it's a victim. Right. And the reality is, is that they're all different. You know, they're all the tactics may be the same, but there, there, there's no rhyme or reason. You know, it's not people who are uneducated that are using these tactics. It's not all people who are poor right. that are using these tactics. We see it across the board. And, you know, the I guess the the only thing that they all have in common is they they want to dominate their partner. They want to be in control of their partner. And they believe they have the right to do that. You know, it's this belief system that they have the right to treat somebody in these ways and and so it's it's there really is no pattern or rhyme or reason unfortunately you know if there were i think that we we could figure out how better to stop it my follow-up question would be especially when we talk about fairly recognized nations and the trust responsibility of the federal government and then the work that strong hearts native helpline's been doing since i think 2012 or 2013 is you know the the question then is does the federal government or is the federal government honoring its trust responsibilities by providing the necessary resources that are needed to address domestic violence in indigenous households? You know, there's a really great report that's out. I don't know if you've had an opportunity to see it, but it's called Broken Promises. Yeah. Um, and I think it came out in 2018. Yeah. Um, and it was a follow-up to a report that was done earlier, you know, and just in about all the ways that really the federal government does not live up to its trust responsibilities, you know, and it, you know, education, health, cr- 
criminal justice, you know, all of the ways that they fail, honestly. And in, in the area of domestic violence, it's not any different. Have things gotten better? Absolutely. You know, the Violence Against Women Act, you know, in 2005, a tribal chapter was included, um, and that has improved the situation. But there's so many, you know, the funding that is offered doesn't come near to meeting the need. And so, you know, I think that there is a failure there. And, and, and we, you know, we can't just look at domestic violence in a, in a vacuum because so many other things impact it, right? Law enforcement, whether or not there's a law enforcement response whether or not law enforcement or prosecutors can prosecute those cases. And if they can't, and again, most tribes haven't, you know, adopted the special jurisdiction that was included in the 2013 Act, you know, then then we're dependent upon the federal prosecutors, you know, the U.S. attorneys in our state. And are they prosecuting? And they're not, certainly not to the extent that they need to. And then our access to health care. You know, when victims need health care and they can't access it because they don't have um, an IHS facility or a tribal health facility in their, on their land. Um, and, and if you're an urban Indian, where do you go? You know, if there are, you know, the urban health facilities are few and far between. If you need shelter, you know, 574 tribal nations, we have less than 60 tribal shelters available to people. And so, you know, there's just so much need and and the federal government has failed to to meet those needs. Lori, as we wrap up this interview and just understanding the importance of the kind of work that Stronghearts Native Helpline continues to to do and to the services it provides for Native American peoples, Native households, and just throughout Indian country. I was wondering, is there any type of contact information, websites, social media information that you'd like to share with our listeners regarding Stronghearts Native Helpline? Yeah, so Stronghearts Native Helpline is a, a helpline dedicated to um, American Indian and Alaska Native persons who are being impacted by domestic and sexual violence. Um, We were created by Native Americans for Native Americans, and I think that's really important um, to mention. So we're very very much a culturally appropriate, anonymous and confidential service. You know, we offer um, peer support, which is really, really important um, to somebody that's being victimized in this way. Um, We provide information and education. So many people don't realize, you know, the different forms of domestic violence. We all know about physical, but there are other forms and tactics that are used, so that education is really important. Safety planning is something that we do with everybody that contacts us, um, just how, how they can keep themselves and their families safer. And then we also, you know, connect them with resources um, that are Native-centered in their communities. And if they can't find them in their communities, then, you know, what other services might be there that can help them in their search for um, safety. So we can be reached at 1-844-762-8483 or 1-844-7-NATIVE. Um, Our services are available every day from 7 a.m. to 10 p.m. Central Standard Time. 
Um, we do look forward to um, becoming a 24-7 operation, and we hope to do that in February of 2021. So we're working on that right now. Um, and if you don't have the op opportunity to call, you can always click on the chat now icon at strongheartshelpline.org, our website. Think about following us on our social media. We do have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And I think that's most of the information that I'd like to get out there. Is there anything that you think would be important for listeners to know that you haven't already shared with us? Well, I think the most important thing that I'd like to tell, you know, listeners and to those that might either be experiencing violence or, or has a family or friend who is, is that, you know, they're not alone. They're not to blame for their situation. They don't deserve to be treated in the ways that they are. Um, and, you know, to reach out, whether it's to Strong Hearts or to another service in your area, um, help is available. You're not alone. The moment of silence is over. And that concludes the second part of our two-part interview with Executive Director Lori Jump of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline on the rise of domestic violence in Native American households and throughout Indian Country. That concludes our show for today on American Indian Airwaves. A special thank you to Director Lori Jump of the Strong Hearts Native Helpline. For more information, you can visit their website at www.strongheartshelpline.org. A special thank you to our musical guest, Aragon Star, Koopa Aina, Geese IMC, and the band Blackfire. A special thank you to our guest co-host, Stephanie Mushruck of the Washoe Nation, American Indian Airwaves is mixed and mastered in Burnt Swamp Studios in Signal Hill, California. For Marcus Lopez, Fabiana Hirsch, I've been your host for the hour, Larry Smith. Until next time. And the blood never comes clean from the guilty minds, nor the hands that hold the chains. Silence is over.